Hello, everyone. For those that don't know me, I'm Meredith, and this is my husband, Stuart. And I'm reading from Genesis 3, 1 to 15. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And now the reading in um, Matthew is Matthew chapter 1, uh, verses 18 to 21. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And before I go, I want to tell you that last year at this time, I was asked to read the first 17 verses of Matthew. So I am very thrilled that I got the second section to read today. <laughs> if you're unaware, the first 17 verses of Matthew have a lot of tricky names in it. Um, Actually, I was reflecting on this. A year ago as a church, we were not in this building. We were actually uh, meeting for church online because uh, the COVID cluster had hit and the school didn't want us here. So it really is good to be with you this morning. Hey, friends, my name is Scott. I'm the pastor here at Trinity Church Pracker. It's nearly Christmas time, isn't it? Um, it's nearly Christmas. It's approaching. And so I want to actually hear from you in, in a moment. 
what do you like about Christmas? Is it the food, the presents? Have you got a family tradition that happens every year that you look forward to? What is it that you like about Christmas? Why don't you turn to someone beside you and ask that question to each other? What do you like about Christmas? And we'll come back together in like a minute. That's probably not quite a minute, but we'll um, come back together, friends. Uh, What is it? What do you like about Christmas? Shoot me, pop out some of your answers. What do you you reckon? What do you love about Christmas? Food? Family? Presents? Yep, yep, yep. New songs? New old songs? There's only one time in the year when you can sing Hark the Herald Angels, right? Uh, Any others? I was thinking about this earlier on in the week, and I realized the older I get, the more I become a bit of a Christmas Grinch. I, um, I'm the one in our family who wants to keep holding off putting up the Christmas tree. I think, we don't really need that up again. And I try to resist carols being played in the home. Like It's just old people singing old songs, isn't it? Uh, uh. I have a whinge about Christmas lights as well. Like, aren't we supposed to be using less electricity, not more? Uh, but even for someone like me, Christmas is a bit of fun. Uh, there's lots to love about it. I'm, I'm, I'm the kind of person who puts my hand up and say food is the best part of Christmas. Um, but if you think about it, Let's be honest, Christmas doesn't really do much for us, does it? I mean, it might be fun and relaxing and enjoyable, but does Christmas really change anything? On Boxing Day, we're going to wake up and the conflicts in our family are still going to be there. On Boxing Day, we're going to wake up and the pressure from the workplace, it hasn't gone anywhere, even if you do have a two-week break. COVID's still going to be here wreaking havoc on any plans we try and make for 2022. And even on a, on, on a wider kind of society level, domestic violence is still going to be a scourge amongst us. Our federal parliament is still going to be rife with abuse and misconduct. You see, Christmas doesn't actually change any of that at all. If anything, Christmas just takes our mind off it for a day, which is actually maybe why we like Christmas. Christmas doesn't change the world And honestly, do any of us actually expect that it would? God does. God thinks Christmas is a big deal. Because according to God, Christmas changes everything. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking into what the Bible has to say about Christmas. And it might be a bit surprising... But God makes some huge promises, some, some, some life-changing promises about Christmas, about how Christmas changes and has to reshape the way we think about the world. And today we're going to dig into the first of these promises. It, perhaps it's God's first promise in the whole of the Bible. It's his promise to put an end to evil. It's the promise, as Kieran said, it's the promise of a snake crusher. So, let's go. To understand this promise, we need to actually go back to the beginning, back to the first book of the Bible, back to the garden with Adam and Eve. And what we see there is that God has made a good world. Not just a good world, this is a very good world. Like This is top shelf kind of stuff. Take a look at how Genesis 1 puts it. So God saw all that he'd made and it was 
very good. After he's made everything, God kind of takes a step back and, and reflects on it. And he goes, look at this. It's terrific. This couldn't be any better. And if we went on and read all through chapter 2, you'd see this more and more and more. God makes this beautiful garden for people to live in where there's abundant, good kind of food. There's the, the scene there is unbeatable. There's rivers and gold and meaningful relationships. It's, it's a picture of, of, full of uh, rich goodness and life for people. And into this really good place, in chapter 3, Satan creeps in, looking like a snake. And he brings evil with him. This is the account that Meredith read for us just a moment ago. And we saw there Satan tempted Adam and Eve to eat the fruit, to go against God, have this forbidden fruit. He twists God's word and essentially he calls for a mutiny against God. And both Adam and Eve agree. They listen to Satan and they're led by him into evil. And make no doubt about it, that act of eating the fruit, it's profoundly evil. I mean, we could sit back for a moment and think, oh, it's not really that bad, is it? I mean, it's just fruit. Isn't, isn't fruit supposed to be good for us? And you could even sit back and think, you know, well, good on Eve. Good for her standing up to this oppressive God. You know, he's created these arbitrary rules and she needs to liberate herself from this oppressive overlord. And she did and now she's free. Good on Eve. But that's actually not what's happening. That's to misread the Bible. The Bible talks about this as a profound evil. Because remember, who is God here? He's not an oppressive overlord of tyranny. He is a generous and good giver. He has richly given Adam and Eve everything they have needed. A place to live, full of beauty, Good food, good relationships, everything they've needed. Even he has given them life itself. As if this kind of God is going to hold back anything from them. But what's their response to God? What do they do? It's kind of like that, 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 that petulant little kid folds their arms and says, No, it's not good enough. God, we know better than you. We'll take it from here. You just go and sit in the corner, please. A couple of years ago, I... Um, read about this guy in the news. His name is Raphael Samuel. He lives in India. And he was in the news because he was suing his parents. Now, what do you think it is that he did? What did what, sorry, what did his parents do to him to make him want to sue them? What do you reckon? They made him eat his Brussels sprouts. It wasn't making him eat his Brussels sprouts. No. And it wasn't that they raised him badly. And it wasn't that they neglected him. It wasn't that they didn't give him enough opportunities to flourish in life. He's suing his parents, get this, he's suing them for giving birth to him. Yeah. You know though, before you get up on your high horse, listen to his argument here. They gave birth to him and yet they didn't consult him on it. That's it. They didn't have his consent to bring him into this world, so they shouldn't have done this. That is his, that is his claim. And as a consequence, he says... Because you didn't have my approval for this, you need to pay for my entire life now. That's his claim. It is insulting, isn't it? It is. The, the disrespect involved in this. 
His parents have every right to be offended with him because they have given him everything. They've given him life. They've loved him. They've raised him. Well, they've given him plenty of opportunities too. He, this guy is a guy who's, who's been raised. Now, he's a, he's a successful man in business. And yet this is how he treats them. To say, not good enough. I want more. Give me all of your money. In a sense, that's what Adam and Eve are doing to God. God here has given them everything. And they still say, no God, not good enough. And from that moment on, evil has entered into God's world. And it's all come, the one who's behind all of this, it's all come through Satan. Which begs the question, doesn't it? Who is Satan? A lot of people think Satan is a fallen angel, an angel who's sinned against God, probably a very powerful angel who's sinned against God. The problem with that idea is that the Bible never actually directly tells us that that's what happened. Uh, there are a couple of passages that people tend to turn to that they think say this is what Satan is. Um, but actually, when you, if you look at those passages closely, they're not actually about Satan. They're about different foreign kings, a king of Tyre and a king of Babylon. That is, we're not really directly told where Satan comes from. But we are told really clearly what Satan is like. You see it in his name. His name is Satan, which is a word that means adversary or opponent. That describes Satan really well. Firstly, Satan is God's adversary. It's not that they're kind of these great rivals who are kind of on level footing and they're just going to duke it out until hopefully one of them finally wins. It's not that at all. God is, is far greater than Satan has ever been. But they're adversaries in the sense that every good thing God wants to do, Satan stands and opposes it. And he drags humanity into it as well, tempting us to stand with him in opposition to God. But also Satan's an adversary to us, to people, in the sense that he accuses us of wrongdoing. With Satan, it's kind of like being in a courtroom. And Satan is that lawyer who keeps saying, God, this person is guilty, you must punish them. God, you saw what Adam and Eve did. You know what they've done. They need to be punished. You cannot let them off, God. God, you know Scott. You know what he's like. You know his greed, his lust, his anger, his pride. He is guilty, God, and you need to do something about it. You see, Satan's kind of like that kid at school. who The kid who would um, dare you to do something, and you'd know it's wrong, but you know your mates are around there, you feel the pressure, you want to go ahead and do it. And so you do. And as soon as you do that thing, he runs off to the teacher and dobs on you. That's what Satan's like. He tempts us, and then when we stuff up, he turns around and says to God, oh, look what he did, God. You've got to punish now, don't you? There's a real ugliness to Satan and his character here. So back to Genesis 3 for a moment. Um, God's made this really good place. Satan comes in. He, he brings evil with him. And the question is, well, what's God going to do about this then? This is where God promises something that is actually amazing. It's breathtaking if you think about it for a moment. You see, the moment that evil enters into the world, God doesn't just sit back and go, oh, I hope this just goes away. He doesn't sweep it under the carpet. 
as if to try and clean up a mess that's just going to grow and grow. At that moment, evil enters into the world. God promises this will not last. Evil has an expiry date. And he says this in Genesis 3, in verse 14. Let me read it again for us. It says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, he's talking to Satan here, and God says, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Did he catch that there, what God is saying? There's, there's one coming, a human, a, a, a descendant of, of Eve, an offspring of the woman. This one's going to come. And when he does Satan, you might strike his heel, yes. But he's going to crush your head. And he's going to bring an end to the evil that you have brought into my good world. That's the promise of Genesis chapter 3. A snake crusher. A one to put an end to evil in the world. And on one level, that sounds great, excellent. I mean, who doesn't want a world without evil, right? But if you stop and think about it for a bit, there's a problem for us in this. The problem is that evil's not just out there. Evil's not just something that that's capable, Satan is capable of and responsible for. People can be evil too. And if God promises to deal with evil, put an end to evil, doesn't that leave us in a dangerous position? Because, well, what if I have done evil? What does that mean for me? Now, by and large, I think most Australians hear this, and we try and deal with this problem by breaking people up into two groups. There's two groups of people. On one hand, you've got some bad apples. Yes, you've got your Hitlers, your Stalins, your Pol Pots. You know, this is the kind of people who, they might be in charge of the big companies who have shoddy practices and pollute the environment and exploit their workers while reaping millions for themselves. These might be the kind of people who are responsible for racism and abuse of women and children and these kinds of things. That is, there are bad people. But on the other hand, there's, there's most of the rest of us. We're different. We're not evil, I'm not saying we're perfect, but we're good, or at least we're good enough. We, we break humanity into these two categories. And most of us think, well, if God's going to put an end to evil, that's a good thing, because we're not some of those bad apples, we're this other kind of person over here. But if we're honest for ourselves, that's not really a good explanation, is it? That's not a good explanation of the world and what we see. Because, well, don't we all have those moments where we miss the mark? where we do the thing that is wrong, we actually, we're not proud of it. And we know we're not proud of it because, well, we like to keep it a secret. We hope not to be able to tell anyone about it. We, and, and, and we prefer others to not know because if they did know that of the thing we did, well, what would they think of us then? If you're anything like me, there's not just one of these moments in your life there's plenty. I'm pretty convinced that if you knew the, the, the depths of the darkness in my heart, you probably wouldn't want me to be your pastor. You probably wouldn't want to know me. The truth of life is, we're a mix. Life is not a kids' TV show where you've got good guys and bad guys. 
in real life, we're a mix. We're capable of doing good and evil. And so we're not just capable of doing good and evil. We actually do do good. And we do do evil. The truth about life is evil is not just an out there problem. Evil is also an in here problem. So if God says he's going to put an end to evil, what does that mean for me? And here's why Christmas is so important. We read earlier what happened, uh, Stuart read for us, in the, uh, the, what happened in the lead up to Jesus being born with Joseph. And Joseph was told, no, take Mary as your wife. That's the kid's not yours, but uh, it's not that Mary's been unfaithful, that the child is from the Holy Spirit. And then Joseph was told specifically what you need to name the child. You are to call him Jesus. Jesus, the name there, means the Lord saves. And the verse says, you're to call him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sin from the evil that Satan has infected and brought into the world, Jesus is going to save people from that. This is no ordinary child here. He is is God's solution to the problem of evil. He is the snake crusher. Now, right back at the start of the Bible, God says evil has an expiry date. And now here, at the very first Christmas, as Jesus is born, God says, this is the one. He is going to put an end to evil in my world. Can you see, friends, then, why Christmas is such a big deal to God? And here's how Jesus does it. He dies. In the prime of his life, he dies. Which looks like a complete uh, uh, reversal. That doesn't, how does that help the problem of evil? But actually, if you look at his life, and if you listen to what he says during his life, he was always intending to die. It's like the purpose of his life was to come and to die. Because his death is not an ordinary death. His death is not the end. Because when Jesus dies, he absorbs that punishment for sin, for my evil in himself. Which has big ramifications for Satan. It means that Satan's accusations crumble. Remember what Satan is like? He tempts me to do sin, to do evil. And when I do, he turns to God and he says, Hey, God, you saw that, didn't you? You better do something. Now, you need to punish Scott. You can't let him get away with that. Except now, when Satan says it, there's another voice that speaks up. It's Jesus' voice. And he says, No, Satan, you are wrong. That has been paid for. I've dealt with that already. It is done. See what this means for Satan? His great, his great weapon against us, his accusations, well, now they're all toothless. Satan as a serpent, it's like he's been defanged. There's nothing he can do now. All that's left for Satan is to await his pending destruction, which Jesus will bring soon. And there's a great picture of this in the book of Revelation. That's where I want to turn to now to end our time together. We're going to turn to Revelation chapter 12. Um, Now, Revelation can feel like a bit of a strange book. Um, There's all sorts of weird and wonderful kind of pictures that are painted there for us. But in essence, these different pictures, they all show us the gospel message, the message about Jesus. So I want to walk with you now uh, through one of these pictures in Revelation chapter 12. Uh, Let me read from verse 1. It's up there. Revelation 12, verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven. 
a woman clothed with the sun and with moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. There's a very Christmassy feel about these verses, isn't there? Here's a woman who's pregnant. The baby's about to be born. There's even kind of all sorts of lights. Reminds you of the Christmas lights on the tree, maybe. Um, But things changed very quickly. Look in verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, seven crowns on his head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. Uh, Not so Christmassy in these couple of verses, is it? Now there's this destructive dragon there. And he's out to get this baby. And we learn in verse 9, we'll see in a moment, this dragon is Satan. And if you think about it, this actually does really fit with the Christmas story. Right from the word go, Satan was out to get Jesus. Uh, maybe you flick your minds back and remember, um, what, what happens when Jesus is born? Well, there's this king in the land, his name is Herod, and he heard about this birth of a new king. And what did he do? In a moment of great evil, he had many babies killed because he didn't want a rival king. And so he went to bloody lengths to exterminate any possibility. It's an action from King Herod that feels like it's got the fingerprints of Satan all over it. And so in Revelation 12, here it is, Satan sitting, waiting to devour this child. And what happens next in verse 5? Well, she, this is the woman, she, gives birth, she gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. Notice here there's protection from God. The woman gives birth, but before the dragon can devour the child, the child is snatched up, taken safely to heaven, to God. And then God also provides a safe place for the woman to go. And it seems, well, maybe this is the end. Maybe there's nothing more to happen, but really things are just about to pick up in verse 7. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his archangels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And this is really the climax of the picture in Revelation chapter 12. Here's, here's a war between heaven and hell. On one side, there's Michael and the archangel from heaven and, and, and Satan and his army from hell. And they clash in this great battle, but Satan's overpowered. And in defeat, he's thrown, he's hurled down. And we're left with a question then, well, how did this happen? How was Satan defeated here? How's the victory won? So often as you're reading in Revelation, you see something, the picture, but then you're told of a voice, and it's listening to that voice that helps you understand the picture better. And that's what we get to in in Revelation 12. We see the next verse, we listen to the, the, the voice in verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation 
and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Now, there's heaps to unpack in those verses, right? Salvation is here. There's a new world, a new kingdom has been established. Satan, the accuser, has been defeated. There's heaps to say. But I just want to point out two things. Two things about how Satan himself is overthrown and defeated. The first is that they triumph over him by the blood of the Lamb. Again, it's it's, it's talking about Jesus' death. Jesus going to the cross. That that is what brings about Satan's defeat. Remember back in Genesis 3, God made the promise to Satan, you will strike his heel and he will crush your head. Well, Satan did strike Jesus' heel. He went to the cross. He died. But that's also the moment when Jesus crushed Satan. In his death, Jesus brings about an end to Satan. And so now Jesus promises a world, a new kingdom, one where Satan has no impact. Here is a world without evil, promised by Jesus. Do you want to see that place? Do you want to be in that place, a place where there is no evil? Where those in power cannot and do not abuse? Where family violence is a thing of the past, where hate and racism do not exist, a place with no conflict and no pain. Want to see that place? Jesus says, only I can bring that. Because only I am the one who crushes the snake. Only I am the one who puts an end to evil. If you're here today, and you're not really sure what to make about this whole Jesus thing, can I say, I don't think he's someone to ignore. Let me invite you then. Would you keep coming back over summer break? Get to know him more. Jesus is going to be the focus of everything we look at. Would you like to get to know him? We'd love to invite you to be here amongst us and do that with us. But second, notice that Satan's downfall also comes about by the word of their testimony. Now, it's not that Jesus' death and resurrection are not enough, that there needs to be something else added on to that to overthrow Satan. That's not it. But it's saying that as people go on speaking about Jesus, as we go out and tell other people about what Jesus has done, well, what happens to Satan and his kingdom then? It shrinks. As we speak about Jesus, as we invite people to live to Jesus, you know, some people say yes. And so there is another person whom Satan cannot accuse. There is another person for whom Satan has become powerless, the toothless snake. And so Satan's influence, it shrinks and it shrinks as people begin to follow Jesus which is why we want to make the most of Christmas. Which is why we're going out of our way to try and do something on Christmas Eve, do the Christmas Eve carols. Because, well, here's one time in the year where many of our friends might actually be open to coming to church. Many of our friends who would normally would stay a mile away might actually come along with us. 
We want to do whatever we can to help them hear and know about Jesus. And next year, we're going to do it all again. We'll learn from what we did this year. We'll get better at it next year. Because we want to be those who keep speaking about Jesus, the one who brings an end to evil in our world. So let me end then, friends, with this simple encouragement. Who could you invite to Christmas Eve carols this year? There's a a leaflet on your chair there as you came in. That's for you to take home with you, not to put on the fridge so you can remember, but take home. Maybe you want to pass that on to a friend and invite them along too. Who could you invite along to carols this year? Over the Christmas season, is there someone that you know whom you could speak to about Jesus, about what he's done for you, about the hope that you have put in him? There's a nativity scene up there. It might look nice and cute. But ultimately, it's not one of those, those nice Christmas things that actually do nothing. This is a reminder that Jesus' birth is God's marker. It's God putting a line in the sand. Jesus' birth is God saying no to evil. It's God saying, I am putting an end to evil. Because the baby in the manger, Jesus, he is the one who crushes the serpent's head. He is the one who finally makes evil expire. Christmas is huge because it is all about God putting an end to evil. And in light of that, I'm going to pray and say thanks to God. Will you join me? Our God in heaven, thank you that you do not let evil go on in your world. We praise you that you've put an end to it, that you are putting an end to it, and that you will put an end to it through Jesus. And so we long for that day, Father, when evil is completely ended. Thank you that Satan's accusations now no longer hold anything over us because of Jesus. And thank you that Jesus promises us a new world, a new kingdom where there is no evil. Help us look forward to that. Help us speak about that. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.